an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. My talk this afternoon is entitled Humane Vitae in Historical and Social Perspective. As we all know, it's very widely assumed in modern Western culture that reliable contraception is a great good, a wonderful step forward in human history. Because of contraception, well, couples, whether married or not, can express their affection for each other without fearing that an unwanted child will be conceived. Without needing to abstain from intercourse at all, women can avoid being tied down by unplanned children and are free to get on with their professional lives. We've all heard this story. But of course, some pills or devices like Ella and the copper IUD, although called contraceptives, are clearly abortifacient. They take the life of that already conceived child. Other, others like the morning after pill and even the contraceptive pill seem to function, at least at times, and with varying degrees of frequency, as abortifacients. And of course, when contraception fails, there tends to be a willingness to turn to surgical abortion to solve the problem. For when a child, whom people tried to prevent, nevertheless comes into existence, they cannot help but wish that the child did not exist, and so must either take the next step or make room in their life for the baby they did not want. Now, it's worth noting, by the way, that couples that practice NFP are in an entirely different situation. Although they may well be distressed if a child is conceived, despite their plan to engage in intercourse only during the infertile times, they can honestly say that they did not try to prevent the child. In fact, they abstained when they thought conception was possible precisely because they were unwilling to make such a contra-life choice. They are therefore unlikely to be tempted to make the far graver contra-life choice of abortion. But I'm not going to be dealing in this talk with those matters or even with the moral problem of contraception when it really is only contraception. I draw attention to the widespread assumption that contraception is a great good, not to focus immediately on the problem, problems built into that assumption, but in order to contrast it with the earlier widespread assumption that contraception is wrong and at odds with the Judeo-Christian morality and human dignity. Today, contraception is not only regarded as morally acceptable, but it is sometimes considered wrong not to contracept. People who consider contraception wrong are thought to be unenlightened. The cultural assumption that contraception is a great good is, of course, widely shared among Catholics, as Father 
pointed out, including many otherwise faithful Catholics. But until the 19th century, when attitudes about contraception began to change, the wrongness of contraception was generally accepted as an integral element of the common Judeo-Christian morality of sex, marriage, and human life. In the long tradition, all Christians, not just Catholics, accepted the wrongness of contraception. John Noonan, professor and judge John Noonan, in his widely acclaimed and remarkably thorough book, Contraception, A History of Its Treatment by the Catholic Theologians and Canonists, affirms that there was a universal rejection of contraception in the church. He acknowledges that historical fact, even though he himself supports a change in the teaching on contraception. Noonan makes it clear that it was universally assumed that the wrongness of contraception was implicit in an authentically Christian morality of sexuality, marriage, and human life. And the Protestant scholar Charles Provan, in a book titled The Bible and Birth Control, documents the fact that all of the reformers, Luther, Calvin, and so forth, opposed contraception. So what accounts for the dramatic shift in attitude about contraception? To begin to understand it, it's necessary to consider the significance of the shift from the agrarian rural society to industrial and urban society. Until the Industrial Revolution, the norm was for people to marry, to have regular marital intercourse and gladly accept whatever children came along. Of course, people who were misbehaving or were not normal married couples sometimes did resort to contraception, but married people tended not to have a problem accepting the teaching on contraception. The reason is not, of course, that people in earlier times happened to be more virtuous. To understand why the teaching on contraception did not pose a problem for most married couples, we need to reflect on what agrarian society was like and what healthcare was like before the dawn of modern medicine. Running a farm used to require far more labor than it does today. And of course, children helped their parents with the farm work. Since the farm produced what everyone in the family needed to eat, children were not regarded as an economic liability, but rather as a needed blessing. People tended to want to have a lot of children. Yet, because women breastfed their babies, which was, of course, the only way they could feed them, the return of periods was delayed, and so there was a natural spacing of children. And then, too, because of the relatively primitive state of medicine, the infant mortality rate was much higher than in earlier times, and many children who survived infancy died from diseases that are easily treatable today. With the far higher rate of the death of infants and young children, and the higher death rate generally, a couple might have 12 children, but only a few who survive into adulthood. 
Moreover, raising children was in many ways easier in earlier times. This responsibility did not prevent the mother from working outside the home because doing so was never an option in the first place. Both men and women tended to work on a farm, right where they lived. The mother was already there, and even small children could do things like feed the chickens and help with the gardening. It's worth noting, too, that in agrarian society, there really was no such thing as adolescence. It's a more modern concept. When children reached puberty, they were considered adults and started shouldering their responsibility in the family. People married young, and again, life expectancy just wasn't what it is now. A major shift took place, however, when the Industrial Revolution and the movement of much of the population into cities took place. Even as that shift was occurring, it became clear that germs cause disease. And so institutions and individuals began to develop sanitary practices. And so too, modern medicine began to find effective remedies for disease. As a result, the mortality rate decreased dramatically. Industrial urban life required someone to be at home to take care of the children but now, home was not the place where the work that supported the family was done. Of course, there was child labor, but that, of course, was an abuse, and people didn't cherish the idea of having their children work in a factory at the age of six or seven, which was quite a different prospect from children helping their mothers with the gardening and doing other farm chores. Moreover, the transition from childhood to adulthood became far more difficult. To do well in such a context, children needed to receive more education and, except for the relatively few who were well-to-do, needed to be trained in a skill for a long time. Well, this delayed the time when children could leave home and begin their own families. The result of all of this is that a situation began to emerge in the urbanized and industrialized economy of the 19th century in which it became impossible for most people to have all the children that they naturally can have and be able to care for all of them and get them all started in life. This hasn't changed in post-industrial technological society. Rather, the financial challenge for parents has perhaps become even greater. One occasionally hears estimates of how much it costs to raise a child today, and those reports are sobering. For example, CNN recently reported, from daycare to the monthly grocery bill, the cost of raising a child is climbing at a rate that many families can't keep up with. It will cost an estimated $241,000 $80 for a middle-income couple to raise a child born last year for 18 years, according to a U.S. Department of Agriculture report. That's up almost 3.5% from 2011 and doesn't even include the cost of college. Of course, one can criticize such reports. One might point out 
and rightly that dispensing with superfluities can make it possible for many couples to have large families even today. Or at least that doing without things like luxury cars and expensive vacations would make it possible for many couples to provide for four or five children rather than none or only one or two. One might further note that God has a way of providing for those who are generous and rely on him day by day. And that it is foolish for a couple to wait until they have $241,080 or something like that in the bank before they begin to be open to conceiving a child. Now those points, no doubt, are well worth making. They're important. Still, it remains true that in agrarian rural society, prospective parents didn't need to worry about how they would provide for their children. While in industrial, I mean generally speaking, while in industrialized urban society and post-industrial technological society, it is very difficult for parents to see how they can provide for more than a very few children at most and still maintain a modest lifestyle and make ends meet. So, the need for most people to exercise responsible parenthood by limiting the size of their families is evident. Most people cannot, as people in time past could, just get married and have all the children that naturally come along. That problem arose when society began to change, and it remains a problem. When it first emerged, the only solution for faithful Catholics was obvious, though very difficult. When a couple had all the children they could deal with, they abstained from marital intercourse and sometimes did so for many years. It should come as no surprise that a confessor in the 19th century surely would often have heard many people confess sins of onanism, that is, coitus interruptus, withdrawal, and masturbation. And parents, I mean, excuse me, pastors did not have a practical way of helping people who confess those sins. Marital intercourse is God's gift, God's gift to married couples that enables them to express and helps them live out their personal one flesh unity. But when they cannot responsibly conceive a child because they need to meet their other responsibilities, well, they are obliged to abstain, despite the fact that abstaining for long stretches is difficult and tends to put pressure on a marriage. It's worth recalling what St. Paul says. Do not refuse one another except perhaps by agreement and for a season, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, lest Satan tempt you through lack of self-control. That's from 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5. Of course, Paul also says later on in the same letter, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your strength. But with the temptation will also provide a way of escape 
that you may be able to endure it. But it's not easy to be continent under such circumstances. And it began to seem to many people that to exclude contraception, even in dire circumstances, means unnecessarily burdening people. And from her earliest days, the church has sought to avoid doing that. Jesus talks about laying burdens on people. And the Council of Jerusalem and the Acts of the Apostles makes it clear that they should not burden people beyond what is required. So at this point, when this, these changes began to happen, people began to have these problems, being faithful to the teaching, confessors sometimes sent questions about contraception to Rome for help. But, of course, the Holy Office, now the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, could not provide responses that were at odds with the church's teaching. No doubt, even back then, some confessors who were perhaps well-meaning, but who legalistically regarded the church teaching on contraception as a rule rather than a moral norm as it truly is. These confessors mistakenly thought they could dispense people from the obligation to refrain from contraception. Still, the teaching that contraception is always excluded remained very clear in the Catholic Church. Now, the problem I described, which put great pressure on marriage and was widely experienced by Christians, led Protestant pastors to adopt a softer approach to the issue of contraception. Indeed, it finally led Protestant churches to give up on the previously universally accepted teaching. The history of the Anglican Church's handling of the issue of contraception is instructive. For that ecclesiastical community sought to face up to the problem formally. The question of the morality of contraception arose at the sixth Lambeth Conference. They have them every 10 years. This one was in 1920. Resolution 68 rejected it, rejected contraception in all circumstances. This is the Anglican Church, 1920, even within marriage, in all circumstances. I quote, we utter an emphatic warning against the use of unnatural means for the avoidance of conception, together with the grave dangers, physical, moral, and religious, thereby incurred, and against the evils with which the extensive ex extension of such use threatens the race. We steadfastly uphold what must always be regarded as the governing considerations of Christian marriage. One is the primary purpose for which marriage exists, namely the continuation of the race through the gift and heritage of children. The other is the paramount importance in married life of deliberate and thoughtful self-control. But at the very next Lambeth Conference, 10 years later, the Anglican Church changed her position and announced in resolution 15, in carefully guarded language, but nevertheless a, a, a big change in the teaching, announced that in some circumstances contraception is morally acceptable. Again, I quote, 
where there is a clearly felt moral obligation to limit or avoid parenthood, the method must be decided on Christian principles. The primary and obvious method is complete abstinence from intercourse, as far as may be necessary, in a life of discipleship and self-control lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, in those cases where there is such a clearly felt moral obligation to limit or avoid parenthood, and where there is a morally sound reason for avoiding complete abstinence, the conference agrees that other methods may be used, provided that this is done in the light of the same Christian principles. The conference records its strong condemnation of the use of any methods of conception control for motives of selfishness, luxury, or mere convenience. Again, that statement is groundbreaking because until it came out in 1930, all Protestant denominations agreed with the church's, Catholic Church's condemnation of contraception in all circumstances. Soon enough, however, the Anglican Church began to approve of contraception far more broadly. And every Protestant denomination eventually approved contraception so that today only the Catholic Church proclaims the once universally accepted Christian teaching that contraception is intrinsically wrong. Now contraception was not the only moral issue that societal changes gave rise to. The Catholic Church was also faced with the spread of divorce and the beginnings of societal approval of abortion. Indeed, the traditional conception of marriage as a whole was under attack. To, and don't we know that today? To provide a better treatment of those issues and to defend the Catholic teaching, therefore, Pope Pius XI wrote the encyclical Casti Canubi on chaste couples, which, chaste spouses, which was published on December 31st, 1930. Now at this time too, natural family planning began to be introduced. Some people assumed, and a few still think, that the practice of periodic abstinence to avoid conception, that that practice is morally wrong. But if you think about it, think about the elements involved, no one ever questioned the morality of a married couple abstaining from intercourse when they had all the children they could take care of. Nobody thought that was wrong. So that they wouldn't have children that they could not take care of. And of course, the church has always taught that couples, for example, elderly couples and couples who learn by experience that they are sterile, can licitly enjoy marital intercourse, even though they know that it is impossible for them to conceive. Well, natural family planning, which presupposes knowledge of when a couple is fertile, simply combines those two elements, so that a couple who should not conceive abstains when conception is possible and comes together when it is not. But because marriage is meant to be open to new life, couples do need to have a good reason for confining their marital intercourse to the infertile times. Of course, I should add, 
as we know, that natural family planning really is a positive way to plan to have children, understand when one, a woman is fertile so that you can seek to conceive by coming together at those times. Mary Shivanandan, who has for years taught at the John Paul II Institute in Washington, D.C., notes the development within the church's teaching. She writes, when Pius XI condemned contraception is in his encyclical on marriage, Casti Canubii, he did not address the licitness of the rhythm method, which had, not, which had only recently been discovered, but did allow married couples to the use of their conjugal rights in the proper manner, when new life could not be brought forth, either because of timing or defects of nature. Pius XII, in an address to Italian midwives in October 1951, so 21 years after Casti Canubi, declared licit the use of the sterile period for serious reason. But if the couple was confining intercourse to those days exclusively, their conduct needed to be examined. In that case, it was not enough to be ready to accept a pregnancy if one should occur. For the practice to be moral, there must be serious reasons independent of the couple's goodwill. Otherwise, to do so, quote, would be a sin against the very meaning of conjugal life, unquote. At the same time, Pius XII advised midwives to obtain a thorough knowledge of the biological and technical aspects of the theory. Well, some Catholics, however, began to claim that married couples have a right to have sex whenever they want. And they considered the abstinence NFP requires to be a serious imposition on a marriage. And this situation, along with the widespread acceptance of contraception outside the church, put growing pressure on the church to approve of contraception. During the period from Casti Canubi, again 1930, to Vatican II, which began in 65, there were very important societal changes that increased this pressure. We've talked about societal pressures up to about 1930, but you know, let's consider what happened after that. The Great Depression brought a tremendous economic setback that left many people without jobs. And the late 30s brought a great disruption of life with many conflicts culminating in World War II, which extended, of course, into the mid-40s. During that period, the pressure that urbanization and industrialization were putting on people to limit the size of their families was becoming ever stronger. Those who had reliable, adequately paying jobs did not suffer greatly, but those who did not, well, they were in dire straits, for there was no social welfare system for them to rely on. We take that system for granted today, but it developed in response to these problems. In short, the 30s and the war situation that followed were extremely difficult for a great number of people and gave them good reasons for not having children or not having very many children. When you're out of work or at war or displaced, it's obviously not a good time to have children. 
The situation eased in the late 40s and 50s, and there was a baby boom. But by the time the 60s arrived, many couples already had all of the children they thought they could bring up and educate. So a lot of people got to the point of thinking that it was time to limit the number of their children. Then too, the cultural tendency of the 60s was to attack standards, proclaim freedom, and frankly promote a kind of self-indulgence. There was a general rebellion against the strict moral code of the so-called establishment, especially with respect to sex. Now, the account I just gave, this historical background, this social background, is really what one must understand in order to see why there was such great pressure on the church to approve contraception and this miracle pill that was able to really do a great job of contraception of preventing pregnancy. Such great pressure on the church to approve contraception before the publication of Humanae Vitae on July 25th, 1968. Pressure that continues. But that background hasn't really been well understood by people, so I'm delighted to have the opportunity to discuss it. Those who were in favor of contraception have not shown much interest in understanding how the movement they represent developed. They focused instead on vindicating within the church what they considered a right to practice contraception. Unfortunately, those who recognize the necessity of retaining traditional teaching on contraception have also generally shown little interest in understanding this background. Their focus was instead on the truth of the teaching, which does not depend on how the related history unfolds. But it's surely important for pastors to understand this history so that they will see how things might have been handled and might still be handled in a more pastorally sensitive and helpful way. Of course, one might ask, what could pastors have done? Well, the first thing would be to recognize the situation of hardship, to see that a couple is under a huge amount of pressure, and to ask themselves how they can help the couple live with the teaching on contraception under such difficult circumstances. You know, if you think about it, often enough, just being able to say you understand this has got to be really difficult is really helpful. I think we all know that as kids. Even if mom or dad can't do anything to help us in our painful situation, just knowing they understand makes a huge difference. And it can really put us in touch with the Lord himself. But it seems clear instead that many well-intentioned, faithful confessors insisted on the teaching without really understanding how difficult it is for people and without pondering deeply how they might help them live by it. While other confessors who may or may not have understood the difficulty assumed that they did not need to insist on that teaching and could even privately approve of contraception or give permission Again, they're thinking legalistically, like it's just a rule rather than a moral norm. Now, the dissent that began to be manifested in the 60s 
had no doubt been quietly brewing underground in the preceding decades, when the teaching was neither well taught nor wholeheartedly and universally accepted as it had been before society began to change. Those who rejected the teaching needed arguments to justify their dissent, but they didn't produce any new arguments. Instead, Catholic theologians essentially reiterated the pro-contraception arguments that had been made earlier by Protestants. The main effort to justify contraception relied on a proportionalist reasoning, which drew heavily from non-Christian philosophers. It has an Anglo-American background in the utilitarianism of thinkers like John Stuart Mill and Jeremy Bentham. But German theologians like Redemptorist Father Bernard Herring and Jesuit Father Joseph Fuchs, both of whom served on Pope Paul VI's Commission on Population, Family, and Birth Rate, and both of whom denied that contraception was intrinsically wrong, were no doubt also influenced by Immanuel Kant. Although Kant is widely assumed to have been a moral absolutist, he sometimes does suggest that there can be exceptions to moral norms. What about Paul VI? What was his attitude toward contraception? Well, he continued the Commission on Population, Family, and Birth Rate that John XXIII had initiated. And of course, he waited some time, quite some time, before issuing Humanae Vitae. Theologians like Father Richard McCormick, SJ, claimed before Humanae Vitae was published that Paul VI was in doubt about whether the Church's teaching on contraception could be changed and concluded that this doubt made it reasonable for people to follow their own judgment about the matter. By the way, a very helpful history of the Commission on Population, Family, and Birth Rate, uh, a history that I would highly recommend that you consult, is to be found on the website of Professor Germain Griset in the section on his colleague, Father Ford, his friend and colleague, just go to twotlj.org. It's easy to remember because his masterwork, Professor Griset's masterwork called The Way of the Lord Jesus, twotlj.org. And go to the section at the top called Griset and Colleagues and scroll down to John C. Ford, SJ you'll find a fascinating account of what happened during those years before Humanae Vitae, including never-before-published documents from the Commission. Now, Professor Griset knows a great deal about this matter, I think more than anybody else alive today, because he served as Father Ford's theological assistant. Father Ford was a really heroic man. He served on the Commission and strongly supported the church's teaching on contraception when many previously sound theologians began calling that teaching into question. Professor Griset served as Father Ford's theological advisor 
And I draw your attention in particular to a memorandum that Professor Griset put together at the request of Cardinal Ottaviani, who was very involved in all of this, titled Memorandum on the Mentality of Those Who Would Approve Contraception. My paper was ultimately occasioned by that memorandum, which contains some of the history I've considered today. Very fascinating document. Back to Paul VI. There's no evidence, no evidence to support the claim that Paul VI was in doubt about the church's teaching on contraception. He knew what Pius XI taught, had taught in Casti e Canubi, and there's no reason to think that he considered that teaching false or questionable. He knew it had to be accepted. But Paul VI also wanted to help married couples in any way he could. And he did not want to condemn anything the tradition did not require him to condemn. He was open to arguments defending the view that married couples somehow can practice limitation in ways that had not been considered before. I mean, the pill was a new phenomenon. In ways that, are, that had not been considered before and are faithful to the tradition. So Paul VI was open to being convinced that a development consistent with the church's long tradition allows the use of the pill. This was the view of his own personal theological advisor, Bishop Carlo Colombo, who held that using the pill is not an instance of the contraception that had always been condemned. But, and here's the, here's the key point, the arguments that theologians proffered failed to convince Paul the sixth. He knew he had to be faithful to the tradition. He was only open to having someone show him that this is consistent with the tradition. They failed to show him that. And so, for this reason, when Paul the sixth reaffirmed the, the church's traditional rejection of contraception, he defined contraception as, quote, any action which either before, at the moment of, or after marital intercourse is specifically intended to impede procreation. That's in Humani Vitae 14. Let me read it again. Any action which either before, at the moment of, or after sexual intercourse is specifically intended to impede procreation. Well, you know, when you take the pill, you're doing it well before the act of intercourse. Other methods were done at the time of or after, and so some argued this is something new and different, but he said, no, this is, this is included in what the church has always meant. So he made it clear that the pill is contraceptive, is part of what the church has condemned, that has to be included in what the church has always rejected. He was thinking both traditionally and pastorally. He knew he had to teach the truth that the church had always taught, but in order not to burden people unnecessarily, he wanted to be sure not to teach what was not required by the tradition. And so he had theologians look into the matter to see if they had arguments that could convince him that the moral truth he had to teach about the wrongness of contraception left any wiggle room for the use of the pill. And, well, again, they did not convince him. Now, 
It's worth noticing Paul VI's attitude here. His attitude makes it clear that he grasped an essential distinction that it's important for us also to grasp. He realized that what was at stake was not making a decision about what to allow, as though it were up to him to construct a rule, whether strict or lenient, and he just had to use his pastoral judgment about how strict to make it. Rather, he understood that it was a matter of coming to understand the moral truth more deeply. He didn't have a decision to make. He needed to understand the moral truth and then put something out that reflects it. It wasn't a matter of, uh, it was a matter of coming to understand the moral truth more deeply in order to see what it does and does not require. A great deal of the movement for approving contraception was not focused on understanding truth, but on arguing for a certain policy seeing it merely as a matter of rulemaking, a kind of legalistic mentality. If the issue, though, is what is true about the matter at hand, then quite clearly counting up the numbers of people on each side does not help at all. The only thing that matters is what people's arguments are, and it's entirely accidental how many people think what Paul VI understood uh, it, it didn't matter how many people understood this uh, or how many people thought this or thought that. Paul VI understood that arguments and truth and not numbers are what really matters. Now, in fairness, some dissenting moral theologians also understood that truth was at stake and not just rulemaking. Unfortunately, however, their pursuit of truth was largely thwarted by their proportionalist methodology and presuppositions. Because proportionalism requires an incoherent weighing of so-called premoral goods and bads. It's beyond the scope of this talk to explain in any detail the problem, problems with proportionalism, which of course John Paul II soundly criticizes in his encyclical Veritatis Splendor, but I can at least say this. Proportionalists claim that our moral obligation is always to choose the greater good or the lesser evil, and they hold that you can't know in advance what that will be. Instead, they say one must enter into the concrete situation and weigh up the good and bad of each option to see which one promises the more favorable proportion of good to bad. Then your moral obligation is to choose the option that, pro that promises that more favorable proportion, the greater good or the lesser evil. Now because they hold this, notice, they deny that there is any such thing as an intrinsically evil act because you can't know until you do the weighing. That's why the goods that are weighed are called premoral because you haven't figured out what morality requires until after you weigh these goods. And since they deny that there's any intrinsically evil acts, they assume that when a sufficiently, good, uh, sufficiently great good is at stake, it becomes morally acceptable to choose to do what otherwise would be wrong and unreasonable. Nothing 
absolutely nothing is excluded in principle. So proportionalist reasoning is used to justify not just contraception, but also telling deliberate lies, killing unborn children, deterring aggression by being willing to drop bombs on population centers, and many other things. Now this is, of course, appalling. But what exactly is wrong with proportionalist reasoning? Well, there's a problem with saying that we need to enter into the concrete situation and weigh up the goods and bads of each option. Because we can't possibly know all of those goods and bads. We can't possibly know all the good and bad consequences of choosing this or that alternative and the consequences of the consequences and so forth. And e even if we could know all of them, let's imagine we could, so we got all the things we need to weigh up, well, how can we go about doing this weighing, weighing of these goods and bads up against each other to see which option promises the greater good? After all, the goods and bads at stake are different kinds of things, like apples and oranges, or even more radically different, more like apples and kangaroos. I mean, a kind of incoherence. They're utterly different from each other, and the necessary calculation would pos be possible only if the goods at stake were the same kind of thing. But let's set aside those problems for a moment. You can't know all the things you'd need to weigh up, and you're actually able to do the weighing up so that your moral obligation is to choose the option that promises the more favorable proportion of good to bad. Well, another problem arises here. If the weighing clearly shows that this option promises more good and less, less bad than the others, one would have no reason whatsoever to choose the other options. Choice would be impossible. You would necessarily settle on that option, just as someone who seeks money would not have to choose what to do if someone said, you can take either this $20 bill, or this $50 bill, or this $100 bill. Which one are you going to choose? Well, if you're looking for money, there's no choice to make when inevitably goes for the most money available. So what's interesting here is that if proportionalism worked, it would actually make choice be impossible in these moral issues. So on the one hand, it purports to be a method that shows you what your obligation is with respect to moral choosing. And on the other hand, if it actually worked, it would make it impossible for there to be choices in these matters. Okay, well I got into that a little bit more than perhaps I thought. It remains now to consider briefly the aftermath of Humanae Vitae. Shortly after the encyclical appeared, bishops' conferences published responses to it that differed significantly from each other. Now, some responses were wholehearted expressions of acceptance of the encyclical, urging people to embrace the teaching despite its difficulty and rely on God's grace. But quite a few responses contained ambiguous and even misleading assertions, including the statement 
that while one must take the church's teaching into consideration, ultimately one must follow one's own conscience. Now, it's obvious that we always should follow our conscience, but when you say that in this context, it's just as true that you should follow your conscience about whether you should commit adultery or not. It doesn't really, it's not morally illuminating to say you need to follow your conscience. It's misleading, even if it's true. A sympathetic press also tended to publicize widely the latter sort of statement, the ones that, you know, were, were saying these sorts of things, these bishop conferences that weren't so supportive. Publicized them more than the other, other ones that were. Now, although it's true, again, that we must always follow conscience, for those who are charged with the task of teaching to make that point in this context is, in effect, for them to say, here's the teaching, you can take it or leave it. Well, those statements of Episcopal conferences tended to avoid any mention of the need to properly form one's conscience, and they left the impression that a well-formed conscience could rightly judge that one need not accept the encyclical's teaching. Now, the problem of the reception of the teaching of Humanae Vitae was also exacerbated in another way. The commission's work ended in June of 1966. In April of 1967, so less than a year later, but well before, you know, a year and a half or a year and some months before the publication of Humanae Vitae, documents were leaked that informed people that the majority of the commission had told Pope Paul that the church's teaching on contraception could and should change. Some theologians were saying that because the teaching had been questioned and because there were theologians who thought it was morally acceptable to practice contraception and because time had passed and the church had not condemned that view, well, one can take that view as a probable opinion and apply it. Well, such claims by theologians were obviously not without their effect on the pastoral life of the church. When months passed and Paul VI was not saying anything and it was not clear whether he ever would, well, many pastors began to pass that advice on. It was in this context that the encyclical Humanae Vitae was finally published. And when that official documentary outcome of the whole process of inquiry was placed in front of people, not as a teaching that faithful Catholics must accept, but instead with the advice that people should follow their own consciences, it was clear that the advice meant that you don't need to abide by the encyclical's teaching, but only to follow your own lights on the matter. I want to make it clear, I'm getting close to the end. It's always nice to have a ray of hope. <laughs> a further problem arose when Monsignor Fernando Lambruschini, in presenting Humanae Vitae to the public, said that the encyclical was not an infallible statement. This is when the encyclical is being officially presented. He said it's not an infallible statement. Now, his remarks did not constitute church teaching, but the Holy See never really clarified them. Now, it's worth noting that the report of the press conference in L'Osservatore Romano, which of course is the official Vatican newspaper, did not include that comment. But it was not really uh, corrected, clarified, and the comment lent further plausibility to the view that one need not abide by the encyclical and may instead follow one's conscience. 
If it's not infallible teaching, people readily concluded, especially given the challenging nature of the teaching and their vested interest in rejecting it, they readily concluded that they need not live by it. Now that was no doubt the effect of Lambruschini's comments on many people, despite the fact that he also said it does require loyal assent of mind and will. It's worth noting, by the way, that John Ford S.J., whom I mentioned earlier, and Professor Germain Griset together published an important article in Theological Studies ten years after Humanae Vitae appeared, in which they argue that although the encyclical does not solemnly define its teaching that contraception is always and everywhere wrong, that teaching had already been proposed by the ordinary magisterium because it meets the criteria set out in Lumen Gentium 25 for the exercise of the infallible ordinary magisterium. So the article is entitled Contraception and the Infallibility of the Ordinary Magisterium. In a press interview following his presentation of Humanae Vitae, Monsignor Lambruschini exacerbated the problem by asserting that the rule excluding contraception is not unreformable. It is up to theologians to debate and expand all moral aspects involved. And if, for instance, some principles should become overwhelmingly accepted in the church, contraception may even be launched. Well, such statements plainly undermine the teaching by conveying to the faithful that it is disposable and can be disregarded. The role of Karol Wojtyła, who of course became Pope John Paul II, now blessed, is of special significance. He had been named to the commission by Paul VI, but was unable to attend. All indications were that he agreed with the position that Paul VI would teach in Humanae Vitae. And Wojtyła no doubt made his contribution to Paul VI. He must have sent him some material. In 1981, three years after he was elected pope, he published the post-synodal apostolic exhortation Familiaris Consortio, which reaffirmed the teaching of Humanae Vitae. The fact that this document was based upon the synod of bishops is of great significance, for it began to form a collegial consensus on the issue of contraception, which had been lost when conferences of bishops published the ambiguous and misleading reactions to Humanae Vitae that I noted earlier. Theologically far richer than Familiaris Consortio is John Paul II's Theology of the Body series, which he had written before he became Pope. And Mikhail Waldstein explains the development of this theology in his introduction to Man and woman, he created them, a theology of the body, which is his own translation of the theology of the body, published in 2006. Do I have that all right? Good. John Paul presents a whole theology of sex and marriage, and in the context of that treatment, makes what seems to me his most important statement about contraception. He teaches unequivocally that the teaching that contraception is intrinsically wrong is a revealed truth that cannot be other than it is. I quote, 
The above-mentioned moral norm belongs not only to the natural moral law, but also to the moral order revealed by God. Also from this point of view, it could not be different, but solely what is handed down by tradition and the magisterium, and in our days, the encyclical Humanae Vitae as a modern document of this magisterium. This is the final page, by the way. This important teaching follows from John Paul II's analysis of scripture texts in his Theology of the Body. As we know, everything that is revealed is not in the Bible in so many words, right? An example that makes this especially clear is the solemnly defined teaching about Mary's Immaculate Conception. When scripture is properly read, properly understood, it becomes clear that more is revealed than what is explicitly asserted. Neither Pius XI nor Pius XII ever said that the wrongness of contraception is a revealed truth. They said that it is revealed that marriage is indissoluble, but not that contraception is always, uh, not that it's revealed that contraception is always wrong, not that that's a revealed truth. They, they, they certainly asserted it as a truth, but not saying it's a revealed truth. But John pa Paul II did say that. He taught that it is impossible for the teaching to be other than it is. That teaching is the theology of the body's bottom line with respect to contraception. It's of great significance because it makes explicit what was implicit in the earlier and very long-standing universal acceptance by Christians of the teaching that contraception is always wrong. I noted at the beginning of this paper that the wrongness of contraception was an integral part of the Judeo-Christian morality of sex, marriage, and human life. In that long tradition, the wrongness of contraception was certainly accepted universally by Christians, as John Noonan and Charles Provan show. John Paul II confirms the infallibility of that teaching by affirming that it pertains to revelation. Thank you. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.